0: Good morning, church. Um, um, Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is in the chapter, um, Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through 40 on page 212 in the Bibles around the room. We'll be reading uh, the words in Korean today because we believe that God's kingdom includes all nations, tongues, and tribes. From the grace of God, we can be united by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The scripture will be on the screen um, in in English behind me, so you can follow along. Um, When I finish, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And in response, we will say, uh, thanks be to God. Um, Judges chapter 11, verses 29. 이에 여호와의 신이 입다에게 임하시니 입다가 길루앗과 문하세를 지나서 길루앗 미스바에 이르고 길루앗 미스바에서부터 암몬 자손에게로 나아갈 때 그가 여호와께 서운하여 가로대 주께서 과연 암몬 자손을 내 손에 붙이시면 내가 암몬 자손에게서 평안히 돌아올 때 누구든지 내집 문에서 나와서 나를 영접하는 그는 여호와께 돌릴 것이니 내가 그를 번제로 드리겠나이다 하니라. 이에 입다가 암몬 자손에게 이르러 그들과 싸우더니 여호와께서 그들을 그 손에 붙이시매 알로엘에서부터 민니세 이르기까지 이십 치고 또 아벨 그라민까지 크게 도륙하니 이에 암몬 자손이 이스라엘 자손 앞에 항복하였더라 이에 입다가 미스바에 돌아와 자기 집을 잃을 때에 그 딸이 소고를 잡고 춤추며 나와서 영접하니 이는 그의 무남독녀라 입다가 이를 이를 보고 자기 옷을 찢으며 가로대 슬프다 내 딸이여 너는 나를 참당케 하는 자요 너는 나를 괴롭게 하는 자 중에 하나이로다 내가 여호와를 향하여 입을 열었으니 능히 돌이키지 못하리로다 딸이 그에게 이르되 나의 아버지여 아버지께서 여호와를 향하여 입을 여셨으니 내게 내게 행하소서 이는 여호와께서 아버지를 위하여 아버지의 대적 안몬 자손에게 원수를 갚으셨음이니라 아비에게 또 이르되 이 일만 내게 허락하사 나를 두 달만 용납하소서 내가 나의 동무들과 함께 산에 올라가서 나의 처녀로 죽음을 인하여 애곡하겠나이다. 이르되 가라 하고 두달 위안을 보내니 그가 도, 그 동무들과 함께 가서 산 위에서 처녀로 죽음을 인하여 애곡하고 두달 만에 그 아비에게로 돌아온지라 아비가 그 서원한 대로 딸에게 행하니 딸이 남자를 알지 못하고 죽으니라. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for thank you that you have brought each one of us to here today. We gladly surrender our lives to you in worship and praise. Fill us with the knowledge of truth. Give us the spirit of understanding and teach us on how to obey your word. Give us the wisdom that comes from you so that we don't make any foolish decision for our own good. Help us to prepare prepare our hearts to receive your message through Pastor Kyle. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.
1: Thank you, Unju. That was beautiful. That was awesome. All right, please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Kyle. If you are a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. Uh, We are a church that uh, we love to admit that we're train wrecked people who need a good Savior. And so if you are somebody who, you know, like you need something, uh, welcome to the club. We're not a church that thinks we have it all together. We're a church that knows we need Jesus and uh, we're thankful that he is a good savior. So we like the Bible because it tells us the story of Jesus and we're in the book of Judges and so if you don't have a Bible open for that reading, grab one of the Bibles uh, from around the room, steal a Bible from your neighbor and open up to uh, Judges chapter 10. We're gonna cover Judges chapter 10, 11 and part of 12 today, so a lot of scripture and um, we're gonna talk about the story of the judge named Jephthah. Now, throughout this book, uh, we've seen that this book is in the literary genre of a tragedy. So sometimes you read the Bible and you look, tell me how to live my life. This is not uh, this book. This book tells you how not to live your life. It's a tragedy. It shows us how bad things get when we do what is right in our eyes rather than what is right in God's eyes. And today, this is where it gets really dark, because, as we just read in our scripture reading, the judge Jephthah, who 's supposed to be a leader that leads people to God, worships God as if he 's one of the pagan idols and sacrifices his own daughter to them so let 's have some fun <clears throat> there 's a fun game that I like to play at restaurants where uh, it's 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 kind of like a game where you you call it guess their story. So you're sitting around the table, I don't know if you've any played this game, but you're sitting around the table with your friends and you're like, what's that guy's story? And you make up this whole background of their story. You know, you know he's here, he's just he's had a long week day at work and oh, that guy over there with that girl, that girl's really not his wife, you know, they're just, they're just out having a good time. And uh, you make up all this background about these people, but it's kind of unfair because you don't know them at all. And it's also unfair because if they start, like if the waitress came by and heard like, well, that guy's cheating on his wife and then started just treating him real crummy, like accordingly to your story, that would be very unfair. Um, you see, it's unfair to treat somebody different than who they really are. And that's the problem of what happens in the text today is God's people, Israel, started to adopt the views of how other people worshiped their God false gods, and then they started to treat God, Yahweh, accordingly to that, and it was really unfair. And actually, it gets really ugly. So we're titling this sermon, The Tragedy of Cultural Assimilation. Because cultural assimilation is whenever you adopt views about God based on culture, not based on God's self revelation And it's important for us as God's people to worship him according to how he has revealed himself, not according to who we think he is in our minds or who we think culture says he ought to be. We have to worship him according to who he is. So that's the big idea. Worship the God who is, not the God who isn't. Worship the God who is, not the God who isn't. So as we flow through this huge chunk of text, we're gonna look at four wrong views that the people of God had about God. Four wrong views. The first wrong view is simple. God can be manipulated with outward religious cries. God can be manipulated with outward religious cries. Okay, we're gonna, let's look at chapter 10, verse one. If you're new to the Bible, um, the big verses or the big numbers are the uh, chapters and the little numbers are the verses. So in chapter 10, verses one, through five. I'm just going to explain a lot of this story for the sake of time. This is basically what happens. Last week, we talked about the terrible judge named the He was just, he was horrible. One of the worst guys in the Bible. But then right after that, God sends another judge named Tola, the son of Pula, son of Dodo. So Tola Dodo, that's his name. And he is one of Uh, God's Judges, and he says that God raised him up to save Israel. And it just shows us something about the little nature of God. Because after reading the story last week, we saw that, man, it looks like evil is reigning. But this story shows us that God will not let evil reign forever. One day, he will will always continue to save. One day, he's going to come and save. And so God raises up another judge, and he judges and does well for 23 years. And Israel has a time of peace for 23 years. That's a long time. And then he dies and another judge gets raised up and Jer, the Gileadite, judges and God grants peace again for another 20 years, 23 years. So 46 years of history go by in a little paragraph this big. So the thing is though, is with the second judge named Jer, he's not as good of a judge. And we know this because he has 30 sons who ride on 30 donkeys, And uh, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that little fact. They loved donkeys in their household. 30 sons who rise on 30 donkeys. And and what this is basically saying, though, is this, is that Jer, though he was a judge for God, he thought he could break God's laws because he didn't have 30 sons with one woman. He had 30 sons with uh, multiple wives and concubines. And that was against God's commands. And God even said, if there's going to be a leader of my people, he needs to have one wife. Not multiple wives, not multiple concubines. And so already what you see is the author's trying to set up the story. And it starts with the disobedience of a judge named Jer. And then after it, it just all goes to hell in a handbasket. And that shows us something interesting. Throwing out God's laws in one generation often leads to complete abandonment of him in the next. And so it should make us tremble here a little bit of Living Stones. We ought not to be the people who are like, yeah, let's just throw out God's laws. Because if we do that, the good chance is, is with our kids' generation, they won't even want to worship him at all. So then we get to the situation. Verse 6, let's read it together. I'll I'll read it. You can follow along. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals and Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of Israel of the Philistines. That's pretty bad. So in all the other stories throughout the book of Judges, it says that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then they served uh, like one or two gods. Here, there's like dozens and dozens of gods that they just start worshiping. So it's like, you know, when you're like, yeah, you know, I, I had a bad day, I got a flat tire. Well, that's a bad day. But this is like, You got a flat tire, you got to work, you spilled coffee on your shirt, you got fired, you came home, you got in another car accident. Like you, this is really, really bad. And that's where Israel goes. Really, really disobey, really, really abandon God. And because our God is like a jealous father who will not be okay with his kids running to some other gods and saying, come here, daddy. Like our God disciplines his people. And so uh, that's what he did. He hands his people over to another uh, country named uh, the Ammonites. And the Ammonites oppress Israel for 18 years. 18 years of oppression, 18 years of enslavement. And then Israel uh, decides that they want to cry out to God. So look at verse 10 with me of chapter 10. It says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served the other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen and let them save you in this time of your distress. So you see what's happening here. So at first it sounds like in 10, they're doing really good. You're like, way to go, Israel, you got it. Because they're oppressed, 18 years come by and they're like, you know what? We need to cry out to God. And so that's what they do. And so it looks good. They have all the right words, but they have the wrong heart. It's easy to cry out to God with the right words, but to not really want Him in your heart. And that's what's going on. You see, that's what manipulation is. Manipulation is when you use your emotions and your actions to try to control another person to get them to do what you want, but you're not really interested in that other person. And that's what God was noticing about Israel, is, is they were crying out to God with all these religious things, these religious outward cries, but they didn't want to give them their heart. They were really just sorry that they got caught they really weren't sorry that they'd been running away from him. It's like the high school student who gets caught for sneaking out and the parents say, okay, well, we're taking your car. And then they just lose their mind. No, please don't take my car. Like, I'll do anything. I'll do chores for, you know, I'll I'll mow the lawn and take out the trash. I'll do all my sister's chores for three weeks. Like, just please don't take out my car. They're really not upset about the fact that they've hurt their parents' heart. They're just upset that they're gonna get consequences. And there's two different types of grief. The Apostle Paul says there's worldly grief, which leads to death, and then there's godly grief, which leads to repentance and salvation. And this is God calling them out. He says, I've seen this song and dance before. I've seen you guys, I've saved, you've cried out to me and I've saved you, and what do you do? You just go running back to the gods of wood and stone that you make with your own hands. He says, go cry out to them for salvation. Go bow before your little wooden statue and say, save me. (laughs) You see, God is not a God who will be manipulated. You see, the problem with thinking you can manipulate God with your outward religious actions is it paints him to be both inconsiderate and small. First, it paints him to be inconsiderate because it paints him to be like, this God who doesn't really care about you unless you come groveling to him. But that's not the God of the Bible. God knows every hair on your head. And he cares. He is the one giving you breath today because he cares about you. And then it also paints him to be small. Like somehow through our little religious cries, we can get him to do whatever we want. It's like we think we can have God wrapped around our finger. Like, if you've ever raised daughters, you know how this can happen to you as a father. Like, my daughter, you know, like, don't punch your brother, you know, I'm taking away the TV. No, please, and then she comes and crawls in my lap, and she looks at me, and then she cries, and I'm like, okay, well, whatever you want, baby, I'll give it to you. Like, that's how we think we can deal with God sometimes, and it's been different throughout all the ages. Right before the time of the Reformation, There was self-flagellation. You would sin and you would want God's favor. So you would take whips and you would just beat yourself and beat yourself and try to show God how sad you really were so that he would eventually give you favor. Or you'd give him money or you'd say 15 Hail Marys or you would do something to try to earn God's favor. And God is not interested in that. He is interested in your heart. We cannot manipulate God with our outward religious cries. And so he calls it out. And so I wonder, what ways have you been trying to do this? What ways have you been trying to, thinking that you need to do certain things, and then once you do those things, God will start paying attention? You, don't, you need to be comforted that he's far more considerate than you think. And he's also far more powerful than you think, and he will not be manipulated. And so the cool thing happens is when God calls them out in verse 15 and 16, they actually truly repent. So look at verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned Do to us, whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. That's true repentance. Saying God, you know what? We really have sinned Do to us, whatever you seem uh, is good. And it says, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. If you're looking for a verse to highlight in your Bible, highlight that verse. They put away the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And then what it shows us is this. It says, um, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, I love this because it shows us the character of God. It shows us how considerate God really is, even when we think he's not. It says that he... uh, grew impatient over the misery of Israel, this is the author's way of saying God's about to do something awesome, but notice what it's based on. It's not based on the sincerity of their repentance. It's based on the intensity of his love. And that's what salvation is, church. Salvation is based on the intensity of God's love, not the sincerity of our repentance. Hallelujah, because we're a mess. So we've got to remember, we can't manipulate God. That's the first wrong view about God. The second wrong view about God is that you think that you need to bargain with God in order to get him to act. The second wrong view is that you think you need to bargain with God in in order to get him to act. So let me lead you into what happens. It's going to be, we're going to cover a lot of text here. It's all a bunch of stories, so I'm just going to explain the story and then uh, we'll get into the text again. So in verse 17 and 18, what happens is the Ammonites come up against Israel to make war against Israel. And Israel says, this sucks because we don't have a good warrior with us. Who's going to save us? And in verse 11, chapter 1, verse uh, 1 through 3, there's this warrior that we meet named Jephthah. Now, he's a mighty warrior, but the thing about him is he doesn't know who his mom is because his mom, well, his mom is a prostitute. So he probably knows, I guess you do know who your mom is, I guess, when you're born. So... His dad is Gilead, his mom's a prostitute, and uh, his brothers kick him out of the house because they say, you're really not one of us. We're not gonna share inheritance with you. You don't have a place with us. You're the son of a prostitute. Get out of here. So he goes away to live in a far-off country named Tob. And as he's there in this far-off country, eventually Ammonites come and make battle against Israel, and they realize, we just kicked out our best warrior, what are we going to do? And they said, let's humble ourselves and go ask him to come and save us. So they go to uh, Jephthah, and Jephthah has surrounded himself with worthless fellows, not something that you would want to do to please your mama. He's surrounded himself with worthless fellows, and they come to him, and they say, will you please come and save us and deliver us? And he says, if you make me your ruler. And they say, okay. And so then he <laughs> comes back, and he comes back to Gilead, and he says, I'll be your ruler. He, he gets a house where he starts to rule, and then he gets ready to go to war with the Ammonites. But first, he tries to stop the war by reasoning with them. And in verses 12 through uh, 28, it's this long history lesson in which he goes to the Ammonites and he says, hey, why are you trying to kill us? And they said, because you took our land. And then he goes through a bunch of history and says, no, we didn't. This was our land. It's not your land. So it's basically like this. Let's say that Jephthah was a Nevadan. And uh, the Ammonites were Orgonians trying to take us over with all their hemp and tie-dye. They were going to come at us. <laughs> and they were coming at us. And uh, we sent Jephthah to them. And we said, hey, we want, you know, he, he says, why are you coming and trying to attack us? And, he said, and they, the Orgonians said, you took our land. And Jephthah says to him, no, we didn't take your land. This land belonged to another group of people, the Amorites." And we tried to pass through, and they didn't let us, and they made war against us. And so God gave us this land. Therefore, this was never yours in the first place. So why don't you just be happy with the rainforest you have up in Oregon that your little gods have given you? Well, the Ammonites didn't like that. And so they made war against Jephthah and Israel. And so Jephthah needs to assemble the troops to go to battle. And look at verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So first of all, in verse 29, it says, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. The author is going out of his way to say that God is with Jephthah in a special way. But God is with him and Jephthah doesn't really believe it. And then this is where it gets really bad. Look at what he says, And he made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So what he says is, whatever comes out of my house first, after we have victory, I'm gonna give it to you as a burnt offering. Now, if you look at in the original language, it's not whatever comes out of my house, it's whoever comes out of my house first. You see what he's doing here is he's adopted the views that says this is the true tragedy of cultural assimilation. He's adopted the views of the foreign idols around him that say, "If you're going to go to war and you need a victory in blood, you've got to satisfy that God with blood. blood for blood. You have to bargain with God if you want him to act." And here he says, "I'm going to do a human sacrifice." Whatever comes out of my house first, he most likely thought it was gonna be a slave that would come out to greet him with his horses and and take care of him. He was thinking, I'm gonna sacrifice one of my slaves because this is a bad situation and we need God to act. And you see, this is where we gain the wrong view of God from him. That he thought he needed to bargain with God in order to get him to act. And what the problem with this is it's treating God like he's a prostitute. Because when you deal with a prostitute, you say, you have services I need, and I'm willing to pay whatever you want. And that's how Jephthah was treating God. It's a business transaction. You see, but the, the, the Bible tells us over and over and over again that God is not a fellow businessman that you need to tra- do transactions with in order to get what, something from him. God is a shepherd who takes care of his sheep. And sheep don't bargain with their shepherd. <laughs> They follow him and trust him, and you see, I want you to notice that the reason Jephthah bargained with God is because he forgot that god 's spirit was already with him, and that 's when we bargain with God too. We bargain with God whenever we forget that God is already with us, whenever we think that God is already for us we, when we forget that, we start to make bargains with God now. I'm assuming that your bargains with God are not as intense as this, human sacrifice. And I'm hoping I'm right on that. (laughs) But we do bargain with God, don't we? We think that we have to do things in order to get him to act. I remember when we were, you know, we... we (laughs) We think if I just give and I serve and I lead and I do the right Christian thing, then God needs to give me what he wants. And you know how you can tell when you're doing this? Is when you get mad at God when you're doing all those right things and he's not holding up his end of the deal. I remember when we were trying to get pregnant for like 16 months, it'd been a long time and we just couldn't get pregnant. And I remember talking with my wife, Amanda, and she was just like, "I God owes me. Like we've been doing all the right things. We're serving We're giving, we're loving people, we're opening up our lives. And I look around and I see all these other ladies getting pregnant and they're not doing a dang thing. What had we done there? We had adopted a view that God owes us. And we had adopted a view that we think that if we bargain with him, if we do certain things for him, then he has to come through for us. And that's a problem because it paints your relationship with God to be like a business relationship, but that's not how God works. God is a good shepherd and anything that comes into your life, good or bad, is there to shape you and guide you to be a better person for him and to be closer with him, all things. And so how are you bargaining with God? How have you said, made vows to God like, I'll give you what I want. I'll I'll, I'll go on this mission trip across the world if you just do X, Y, and Z for me. This is an invitation for you to not do that and to say I'm sorry and to start trusting your Lord because he's a good shepherd. That's the second view, bargaining with God to get him back. The third wrong view is that we think sometimes that God is rigid and has no room for compassion. And that's what's about to happen here. So basically in... Verses 32 and 33, he goes out, Jephthah leads the Israel army, and they have a great victory. They conquer 20 cities, which is really impressive considering that Israel had been oppressed for 18 years. So this is a bunch of slaves fighting warriors, and they have a great victory conquering 20 cities. And then in verse 34, it says, then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. He's like, This is not what I thought was going to happen. He thought a slave was going to walk out. He was going to take that slave and sacrifice the slave. Instead, it's his daughter. And he tears his clothes and he says, I can't break this vow. I have to kill you now because I made this vow. Because that's, you see, he'd adopted the views of the culture of the time. And the culture of the time, the way that you worship the false gods was like magic. If you say something to them, you have to follow through. Otherwise, a greater curse will come upon your head. And so he's probably worried and he's like, I have to follow through because God is rigid and a greater curse is going to fall on our head if we don't follow through. He's rigid and there is no room for compassion. That's how the false gods were. And so his daughter, she says, well, do to me according to your vow. And then... She goes out and she says, let me just weep for my virginity, for not being able to have, be married and have babies. And so she goes out and weeps for two months. And in verse 29, it says that she came home and Jephthah killed his own daughter because he thought God was rigid and had no room for compassion. Now, some scholars think that, uh, you know, some people say, well, th- maybe he just let her be a virgin. And that that's they were just mourning that. And and almost every scholar that I read on this says, no, he really killed his own daughter. We can't soften up this passage. This is the tragedy of cultural assimilation. This is how bad things get when we do what's right in our own eyes and we make wrong views about who God really is. You see what Jephthah didn't know in, in the previous passage where he goes through that history lesson with the Ammonites, it shows that he knows a lot about God, but he doesn't really know who God is. In Leviticus chapter 27, God gave an an allowance. He said, if if anybody makes a vow that's too great for them that they can't keep, they can come to one of the priests and the priests will give them mercy. And God was never pleased with child sacrifice in the first place, ever. You might say, well, what about the story of Abraham, where God asked Abraham to kill his own son, Isaac? Well, remember what Abraham said to Isaac? Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? And what did Abraham say? God will provide a lamb. Even Abraham knew the character of God that God would provide a way out because God is a God of compassion and he's not a God of rigidness like the other gods around. And so Jephthah had this idea of God like he was this cruel, rigid cop who had no mercy. Imagine you were driving to the hospital because your... uh, Your son just got really hurt, got in a a bad bicycle accident, and was about ready to die on their last breath. And so you you don't have time to call an ambulance, so everybody gets in the car, and you're rushing to the hospital. And then a police officer gets in behind you and pulls you over, and you think, great, the police can escort us to the hospital. And the police officer comes by and says, "Uh, why were you speeding? You say, my son's about to die. We don't have time for the ambulance. We just need to get to the hospital. And says, well, rules are rules. Shouldn't have been speeding. I'm going to go write a ticket. Like, that's pretty rigid and cruel. That's the view that Jephthah had of God. Rules are rules. No, no room for grace, no room for compassion, no room for mercy, no room for my heart. And, and really, when you have a view of God like that, you will fear him, but you'll never love him. You'll, you'll want him from a distance because you don't want him to curse you, but you'll never want to be close with him. And listen to me, this is a problem in churches. Many people who are broken avoid churches because the people in those churches have a view of God that he is rigid and not compassionate, has no room for compassion. Therefore, they show no room for compassion to those broken train wrecked people because they forget how train wrecked they really are. And so it begs us to take a good self-reflection. Do we think that this is what God is really like? Do we think that God is really so rigid and cruel? Or can we understand as it shows it's all throughout the scriptures that God is always making a way for mercy. Hallelujah. That's the third thing. And so he goes through and he kills his own daughter. It's terrible. It should make you sick to your stomach. And it continues to get worse. In uh, chapter 12, verses one through seven, we see that a dispute arises, and we get to the fourth wrong view of God. And the fourth wrong view of God is this: God can be ignored unless there's, things are really, really bad. God is to be ignored unless things are really, really bad. And here, and I'll explain it. Then you'll see what I mean. So, basically, in verses one through three, another tribe named Ephraim comes to uh, the Gileadites. They're all Israelites. And they come to Jephthah and they say, why didn't you invite us to come fight the battle with you? We wanted to share in the glory. And Jephthah says, we did invite you and you didn't come. And uh, so then the the, Eph, the Ephraimites say, well, we're going to burn your house down. And then Jephthah says, well, we're going to kill all of you. And so that's basically the transaction that happens. So if we go back to our previous analogy, it's like uh, the Californians come over to Nevada and they say why didn't you invite us to go fight the Oregonians? And we said, because you don't have any guns. And he said, no, I didn't say that. No, he really said, Jephthah says, we did, but you didn't want to come and help. And they said, well, we're going to burn your sagebrush house down. And we say, well, we're going to kill all of you. And so then what we do is we capture, you know, we capture Donner Pass. We capture, we capture the, the transition. We capture the border. And what goes on to happen is kind of silly but also terrible. Um, it says in verse 5, The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? when he said, no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. So we captured. it's like this, we captured the border and the way that we tell the difference between, uh, Nevadans and Californians is like, you know, they say the word creek wrong. They say crick instead of creek. And so, uh, They want to come over there to say I'm from Nevada. I was just over visiting some family, and we say okay, we'll say the word creek, and they say crick, dead on the spot. (laughs) And that's essentially what happens. This is a civil war. Forty-two thousand people. Imagine what would happen to social media if forty, if Nevada killed forty-two thousand Californians at the border. Like this would be worldwide news, and it's happening in God's nation. And the reason it's happening is because Jephthah never consulted God and he decided to take matters into his own hands. There's something that every commentator noted on this. They said throughout the entire story, God is sought out about what to do, except for in this section. Because what Jephthah had, this view of God, is he had this view of God that you go to God when things are really, really bad, but as long as you can manage it on your own, you take life into your own hands. And that, let, that kind of arrogance led to this kind of slaughter. So Jephthah had the idea of God that he was kind of like Excedrin migraine medicine. Like, and I think a lot of us do too. Like, you don't take Excedrin every day with a small little headache. You get a small headache, you say, man, I need a glass of water. I need to get some rest. I need to eat some food. And you go about your day because you can handle that. You only really go to Excedrin when you have a huge migraine. And that's how a lot of us view God. He's there. And I'll go to him if if I really need help, if I really need him to act. But as long as I can manage on my own, I got this. And that kind of arrogance leads to emotional and sometimes even physical division and slaughter. You see, God is not a God who wants to be distant and just pulled off your shelf like medicine. God is a God who is involved in all things. And he's closer than we think. And so this is the tragedy of cultural assimilation. It all starts because God's people started accepting what other people said about God and treating God accordingly instead of letting God say who he was and instead of letting God reveal who he was. And so it's a good encouragement to worship the God who is, not the God who isn't. Now, the thing is, is if you keep reading the Bible, you just see that Israel just messes up over and over and over again, just like us. And eventually, God kind of gets tired of saying, I'm going to tell you who I am. Eventually, God says, you guys aren't getting it by me telling you. I'm going to show you who I am by giving you my son. And that's why he sent Jesus. And so you may not know this, that if you're new to church, but God sent Jesus to be the full revelation of himself so that we don't have to wonder who he is anymore. In fact, when the angel came to Mary before Jesus was born, the angel said, you shall name him Emmanuel, for he shall be God with us. The book of John calls Jesus the word of God. And think about what a word is. A word is an expression that you can understand of a thought or, or an idea. And so Jesus is God's message to humanity about who he is. You don't have to wonder anymore. We can look exactly at Jesus and see who he is. And we see that he's not like these gods that we see here in this story. He's not small. He's all powerful. He can calm storms. And whenever he calms storms, I always love it. Like his disciples are afraid because they think they're gonna sink. And then Jesus calms the storm and it says they're more afraid. (laughs) Because they just realize this guy is not just a man. He's God in the flesh and he is powerful and big. Um, but he's also more considerate than we think because everywhere he went, broken people flocked to him, said about him that a bruised reed he would not uh, crush and a smoldering wick he would not put out. You can come to him when you are hurting because he's considerate. Um, And he's not here to make a business deal with you. (laughs) He never was. Even when he died on the cross, it said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's a horrible businessman, if that's the case. He died for us when we have nothing to give him in return. He just wants us. And he's totally just, but he also provides compassion and he always makes a way. You know, there is a sense of rigidity to God's law, but that's why Jesus lived a perfect life to achieve God's law on our behalf because not, he knew that none of us could do it, so he came and did it for us. And he promises that he's with us in all things. And so it's important as we worship the God who is that Jesus is in the forefront of our minds. And we even read this Old Testament story saying, give me Jesus, because I'm continuing to be like Jephthah. And the downside of it is this, is when you, we all become like what we worship. So think about Jephthah. Um, he became rigid and incompassionate and that's why he slaughtered all those people. Why? Because he had a rigid and, and, and uh, inconsiderate view of who God is. And that's gonna be the same for you. If you think that God is inconsiderate unless you come groveling to him, guess what you're gonna be for other people? You will not seek to help other people unless they come groveling to you. If you're gonna think that you need to bargain with God in order to get him to act, that's how you're gonna expect other people to deal with you. You want something for me? What are you going to give me? If you think that uh, God is rigid and has no room for compassion, there's not going to be a lot of broken people in your life because there are going to be no room for them. But if you understand that God is more compassionate than we think, and he's with us and he's our good shepherd, that's the kind of person you're going to be for other people. And that's the kind of church that God calls us to be. So let us worship the God who is, not the God who isn't. Amen? Oh, by the way, I'm going to say, if you're not a Christian, you know, and as much as this passage is for the Christians to get a right view of God, this is an invitation for you if you're not a Christian to, to see who God really is. And you may not get it today, but um, keep coming back. Keep, keep investigating, because my plea to you is this. If you're going to reject Christianity, actually reject Christianity. Don't reject some God that you've made up in your mind. Reject what Christianity says about God. And that may take a little while, and we're here to walk through that journey with you, but at least reject the, the God who is. <laughs> um, and, and like I said, this is a call for all of us to worship the God who is, not the God who isn't. Let's pray. Lord, we are so much like Jephthah. And we love to hide it. We say, we're not that bad. We don't kill people and all this stuff, but we do in our hearts. And um, and we're a lot like Israel. We We make a lot of vain cries to you without giving you our heart, and we don't want to be those people, and only you can change that, God. Help us to see Christ more vividly. Help us to understand his character better, and help us to worship you for who you truly are, and we pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us in your scriptures, and help us to understand them so that we can have a right view of you. In your name we pray, amen.